Chapter 17, verse 1. The whole community of the Israelites traveled on their journey from the desert of Zin, or Sin, according to Yahweh's instructions, and they pitched camp at Rephidim. Now there was no water for the people to drink. And so the people contended with Moses, and they said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you test Yahweh? But the people were very thirsty and there for water. And they murmured against Moses and said, Why in the world did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and all of our children and our cattle with thirst? So basically, God gives them a test. No water. Do you believe that I can provide for you? They fail it. So he provides them water. So he gives them the exact same test again. And they fail it again. It's kind of like failing 2 plus 2 is 4, and you learn that that's wrong, and it gets drilled in your head, and you come back to the test, and you still can't pass it. Now, it's escalated. They don't just complain, and they don't just give their usual, it would be better for us to die, or you're trying to kill us. Now it says that they contended with him. This word is a legal term that actually means to bring charges against somebody with the intent of giving them the death penalty, basically. So they're accusing of Moses trying to murder them, so they're bringing a legal accusation against him so that he will get the death penalty for murder. That's how bad they are. Now Moses... In verse 4, cried out to Yahweh, What will I do with these people? A little more and they will stone me. So Moses goes to God and he's fearing for his life. He thinks that he's about ready to be killed. Now will they really truly go that far? We have no idea. But Moses, who's been with these people for, over a, for almost a year, and is standing in their midst, and is a very, very, very brave man who believes that God can wipe out the Egyptian army, stands before these people and he's afraid for his life. So something about them is very convincing. That this man who can stand against the Egyptian army and not be afraid is now afraid of his own people. And he's afraid that they're going to stone him. But notice that he immediately goes to God. Yes, he complains about them, but he doesn't complain about God. And he doesn't doubt God's ability to take care of him. He's expressing his fear. He's expressing his desires. And Yahweh said to Moses, Go over before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff, the staff of Yahweh, that staff that struck the Nile, that staff that brought the plagues, that staff that part of the Red Sea, all in judgment, the absolute raw symbol of God's judgment and power. I will be standing before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you will strike the rock, and water will come out so that the people may drink. And Moses did so in plain view of the elders of Israel. Now here's what's interesting. Moses is put on trial. They're going to kill him for the accusation of murder. That's what they want, because they can't do it to God. So Moses goes, and instead of him being put on trial, he's told to take the staff of God and go to the people. Now, when Moses begins to walk out, he must not carry this staff all the time because he obviously doesn't have his hand, and God specifically tells him to put his hand. 
If he comes out with this staff, that staff that you saw strike the Nile, that staff that you saw part the Red Sea, you might start peeing your pants now (laughs) because he's coming out before you now carrying that thing. And it's not Aaron carrying the staff and pointing at Moses, who you wanted to be killed because he's trying to kill you. It's Moses carrying the staff. So basically, the defendant has become the judge or the one that you're prosecuting has become the judge. That's going to scare you big time. But then when he comes out, he walks by them. And he doesn't prosecute them. Instead, he goes to the rock. And it says that God will be standing there before them. The only time that anybody stands, the word, that phrase of standing before somebody is you standing before a king who's about ready to prosecute you. So God is saying, I'm going to stand before the people, meaning I'm going to let them prosecute me. If they really truly want to prosecute me, then let them do it. Now that's amazing. God doesn't deserve to be prosecuted. He's not guilty. Yet he says, go to the rock, and I will be standing on the rock before you, and the people can prosecute me, and you take that staff of judgment, and you strike the the rock. Meaning you're prosecuting the rock that God is standing on, so to speak. Now, this has got to be really confusing to you if you're an Israelite. But here's what's going to be interesting. When you go throughout the Bible, from this point on, God is going to be called the rock. And it's going to be a term that's going to be used over and over again, especially in the Psalms and Isaiah and the prophets, that God is our rock. Now, this isn't a little dinky. I remember when I was in Sunday school class, and they had the flannel board, that green felt stuff, and they had those little cut-out pictures of, like, characters, and they would throw it on there and just magically stick and I remember like being a little kid sitting on the little carpet square before the Sunday school teacher and they put this little teeny rock about this big and Moses comes out with a staff and then they like take the rock away and put another rock out and there's like this little drinking fountain of water coming out. <laughs> now that was really cool. Until I got older and raised like, wait a minute. Okay, before I thought, when I thought there was two million, but even if there's 70 something thousand, That's a long line for the drinking fountain, especially when you're including all the animals. And to realize that the word rock is not rock, it's it's a cliff. It's, It's a giant cliff. And the idea is when he strikes it, this thing is busting open and a river of life is flowing out. How many have that song start popping in your head? Right? That's what he's providing. And the idea is it's going through the camp through the camp. Now they're still going to have to walk to it and there still might be a little bit of a line but this is a river that's flowing out and all throughout the Bible God is going to be referred to as the rock the rock that provides a river of life for everybody the rock that is a cleft that they can hide in and it shields them from their enemies and protects them. A rock that they can go and rest in God it's going to be used both as a symbol of protecting them as a shield from all those things that threaten them, as well as providing for them all their needs. And over and over again, God is going to refer to himself as the rock 
and Israel is going to call themselves the rock because it's on that day that he stood himself on the rock and became one with the rock. And they struck him. Then, when we get to the Gospels, Jesus begins to call himself the rock. Now, a lot of people in America, and atheists and stuff, will try to tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. And technically, they're right. Never once does Jesus ever say, I am God. But, he did say, I'm God a lot. Because if I told you that I can read all of your thoughts, and I know everything you've ever done, and I know your past and your present and your future, what have I just claimed to be? God. I never said G-O-D, but I'm basically claiming to be God. Because the minute I claim the attributes of God, then I'm claiming to be God. And Jesus did a whole lot of that. Because you have to understand what God means to them. And so when Jesus says things like, I am the rock, there's only one person or one being that's ever called the rock, and that's Yahweh. Remember I told you that God never reveals anything new about himself in the Second Testament. He reveals himself fully in the first so that when Christ comes along, Christ does the exact same things that God does. If Christ does new things, then you could say, well, that's a different God. But if he's doing all the same things that Yahweh did, then it's so obvious that he is Yahweh. And not only that, he says stuff like, the wise man builds his house on the rock. And then he says to Peter, behold, I tell you the truth, I will build my church on this rock. Now the Catholics come along and say that's Peter. Because Peter's Petros means rock, and he's the first pope of the Catholic Church, and, and God built his church on Peter. But knowing who Peter is, how many of you want the universal cosmic body of Christ to be built on him? How many of you want the, the, the church to be built on any human? But that's not what he meant. Because there's this, really, I know, I'm going to take you back to English class. There's this thing called remote and a near demonstrative. A remote demonstrative is those and that. They're remote. They're far away from you. A near demonstrative is this and these. They're close to you. So when Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my house, he was using a near demonstrative referring to himself, not to the thing that was remote, Peter. And not only that, when Peter writes first. Peter, the question is, how did Peter interpret Jesus? He did not appear, interpret it as him. Because when Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says that Christ is the foundational stone, and we are all being built into him. And to some, they stumble over him, but to us who will believe, we have life. So Peter totally interpreted the rock as Christ. And that's what you must understand. So Christ is claiming to be the rock. And then when we get to Paul, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 will say that they came through the Red Sea, which was their water baptism, and they were brought to the rock who is Christ. And we're specifically told that this rock here is a typology or a symbol of Christ. Now, what happened? Who was supposed to be put on trial for their sins? Israel. 
but who stood before Israel on the cross and allowed them to put him on trial. And then they struck him with a staff, and what came out of the rock? The water. This is a picture of Christ. This is why Jesus says, if you would have known the Father, you would know me. Like, I just keep doing the same thing that he does. And so, well, yeah, you're like, well, Christ, God is not really on trial, and them striking the rock is not really like putting him on judgment. What does that really do to God? It doesn't do anything. It's a foreshadowing of the day that they really will kill God. And basically what God is saying is that you should have died in the wilderness for your sins, but instead I let you metaphorically strike me to foreshadow the day that I'll really let you kill me for your sins. And he allowed himself to be put on trial before them. And not only that, Ezekiel has a vision of a new temple that will be built one day. And out of this temple comes a water, a river of life that flows to the entire world and brings life to everything in the world. And it turns the Dead Sea into a life-giving water. And then Jesus says, tear down this house and in three days I'll rebuild it. And they're like, the temple took years, how can you do it three days? And John chapter 2 says they did not know that he was talking about his body. And then when he was struck, the water came out. And then when we get to 1 John, because, by the way, John is the one that tells us that the water came out. But when we get to 1 John, who's the same author of the Gospel of John, he says the water that came out of the side was the Holy Spirit going to everybody. And so this is a picture of Christ. All this is pointing towards Christ. And so basically God is saying, one day I will literally let you kill me for what you think that I've done wrong, but it'll really be for your sins. But it won't be the staff of Yahweh. It'll be the spear of the authority of the Roman Empire, the kingdom of man. And that's the picture he's painting. They, they won't get this. They don't get any of this. Until one day, when you take all these pictures of Christ all throughout the First Testament, if you really know your Bible and you see Jesus do this and that and that and that and that, you're going to like, oh, this is kind of familiar. And one time it's like, oh, that's kind of odd. Two times it's like, well, that's interesting. Three times is a coincidence. Four or five, six is a pattern. And then it becomes obvious. Yet it doesn't to most of them. Just like it's not obvious to us. You would think after many, 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 many times of reading the Bible and hearing testimonies in church and having the Holy Spirit work in your life and witnessing him, that it'd be so obvious that you should just go to him to prayer and trust him. But we don't. Because this is the human nature. Remember, that's why Jesus calls us sheep, because they're the stupidest animals. But he loves us anyways. And so this is the picture he's painting. And he lets them strike him in judgment. So he called the name, verse 7, the place of Massah and Meribah, because of the contending of the Israelites and because of their testing of Yahweh, saying, is Yahweh among us or not? So basically they named the place, you're complaining and you're testing of God. How'd you like that to go back on vacation? Mom, Dad, what's that? Well, that's our complaining and that's our testing of God. <laughs> Chapter 17, verse 8. Amalek. Now, Amalek was a nomadic people group. And they just, they didn't really have like a stationary permanent homes. They lived in tents and they moved around. But they weren't just nomadic in an Abraham, Isaac, Jacob kind of a sense of shepherds. 
They were nomadic as in a military, really nasty, ruthless nation who just like going out and killing other people for their stuff rather than growing their own. And so they were a warrior nation. And like there were men and women and children. Mostly the men did the raiding, but the, the wives and the children had no problem reaping the benefits of people being murdered by their husbands. And so this is the kind of people they were. And they lived out in the southern region of Canaan, going into the Sinai Peninsula. And they wandered around. They're a nasty nation. Now, Amalek is not one of the nations that God gave Israel permission to attack and wipe out in Israel. They're not on the, the list of extermination. He's never mentioned them. So that's important to understand. Israel was never allowed to initiate an attack against somebody that was not of the ten nations that God gave him permission. They're only allowed to attack those nations because those nations were already guilty of such grievous sins against God that they were deserving of the death penalty, and God was using Israel to execute the death penalty. But they weren't allowed to just attack anybody else for land or money or any of that kind of stuff. When we'll get to the book of Joshua. We'll talk about that a lot more. Um, but if somebody attacked them, they were allowed to defend themselves. And they were allowed to push them back, but they were not allowed to chase them down. And so Malik is one of those nations. They're not on that list of extermination, but Malik is going to initiate the attack. So Israel is allowed to defend themselves. They're allowed to push Amalek back, but they're not allowed to chase Amalek down because of that. So Malik came and attacked Israel in Rephidim. And so Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now this is the first time that the name of Joshua is mentioned. Originally, Joshua's name was Hosea. And Hosea just means Savior. That's the Hebrew word for Savior. But later, Moses is going to rename Joshua in Exodus 33. He's going to rename him Yeshua, because there are no J's in Hebrew. They're all Y's. The Germans turned them into J's. So Yeshua. And Yeshua means Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is my Savior. And so that's what Joshua's name is going to be. Now, what's interesting is if you take Joshua, or Yeshua, which means Yahweh is my Savior, or Yahweh saves, and you translate that Hebrew word into Greek, it's Jesus. And so basically this is the name of Christ. So um, Joshua becomes a typology of Christ as well. So this is the first time he's mentioned, but he's mentioned as already being a leader, some kind of mentor of Moses, and he's trustworthy enough that Moses is going to send him out. Now remember, Israel has only been in the desert for about... 30, 40 days. So they have no military training. You don't, slave nation doesn't become this like great military nation in 30 or 40 days. We don't even know how many weapons that they even have, if any. And so Joshua is the pick and they go out. But that doesn't matter. So Joshua fought against Amalek just as Moses had instructed him. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And whenever Moses would raise his hands, then Israel prevailed. But whenever he would rest his hands, then Amalek prevailed. And when the hands of Moses became heavy, they took a stone and put it under him. And Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the sun went down. So Joshua destroyed Amalek and his army with the sword. The point is this. 
Only when the staff of God, the power of God, the symbol of God's power is held up that they have victory. And when it's lowered, they don't. So this says that this has nothing to do with their training, has nothing to do with their skills, has nothing to do with the brilliance of Joshua, has nothing to do with their military technological advancements against Malak, or Malak just getting up on the wrong side of the bed that day. Has everything to do with the power of God. Period. That God can take this pathetic slave nation that's been complaining and grumbling and turn them into this military weapon against Amalek. And he defeats them. Now, the idea is that Moses is holding the staff up like this, a horizontal beam going across, one hand on one end of the stick and the other hand on the other stick. And it becomes this banner. In fact, he'll later call it a banner. And a banner was a military banner or a long flag that you would fly with the symbol or the logo or the name or the emblem of your nation. And it became obvious that this was your glory. This was your representative. And yet their banner is this staff of God. Their staff of God. And that's what they're holding up. Now, n- nobody can hold their hand up all day like that. Okay? that. I mean, even if you're just holding it up like this, it gets tiring. And so the idea is he has to sit down, and then two people on either side begin to hold him up and help him. And so the community is working together for this defeat, but all that matters is that they see that this is God. Israel has to see that this is God. So verse 14, Yahweh said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book and rehearse it in, Joshua, in, and rehearse it in Joshua's hearing. For I will surely wipe out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and he called it, Yahweh is my banner. For he said, for a hand was lifted up to the throne of Yahweh and that Yahweh will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, not only does he call this staff the banner of God, but he actually calls it the throne of God, too. So the idea was that this, like Moses created this chariot throne, and God was sitting on top of it as a military leader. And so the idea is if you've seen the, 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 the commander of an army or the king of an army rides out in a chariot, and he sits on top of the hill as he gives commands to everybody, as he sits higher than everybody, or you will see people of wealth who are carrying a chariot where the slaves are like carrying that little box and they're in it and that kind of stuff. And that's the idea is that they've created this throne, this seat of God, and God is the one sitting on top of it, on top of the hill, and he's giving the military commands and leading the battle. Not Moses, not Joshua, but God is the one who's sitting in that chariot. And that becomes very important when we get to the book of Kings and the prophets to understand that. Then notice that because Amalek attacked a defenseless, weak people group, God puts Amalek on the extermination list. Now, a part of you might seem like, well, that's kind of unfair. A nation just attacks them and they're not put on. I mean, Egypt attacked them and they're not put on the wiped out list. But this is different. One of the things that God values more highly than anything else is the way that you treat those who are disadvantaged and those who are oppressed. The way that you treat the oppressed and the disadvantaged, the weak, the foreigners, the poor, says everything about your righteousness. Remember, you've got Lot who's living in a jacked up, corrupt city. And Lot is a compromised, immoral, not righteous man. He has moved to the city that he should not be moving to. 
He's living in the city. He's become so compromised, he's actually become a leader in the city. The only way you become a leader in a wicked city is by becoming compromised. Yet, because he runs out to the angels and says, no, 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 don't go in this city. Stay with me and I will protect you and I will provide you. But don't go in there where they'll hurt you. God declares him a righteous person who's deserved to be saved. Because Lot still cared enough about other people who were weak and defenseless in order to take care of them. Yet Sodom and Gomorrah, who wants to come in and rape them all, and has nothing to do with homosexuality, has everything to do with humiliating and oppressing people in order to dominate them, that's the way they treat somebody who's weak and, and needy, and they decide to dominate them and oppress them and abuse them, they get wiped off the map. And all their other prophets, they're judged for their lack of hospitality, not for their homosexuality. That was their sin that the prophets condemn them for, and the Second Testament condemns them for. So, when Amalek comes and finds a defenseless foreign group of ex-slaves struggling out in the wilderness and decides to attack them and oppress them to gain more and more power, that's what makes them incredibly wicked and not righteous. And that's why they're put on the extermination list. Not because they attack God's people, because Moab is going to attack God's people. Ammon is going to attack God's people. Edom is going to attack God's people. And God will not put them on the extermination list. But when they're attacking, they're attacking Israel as a mighty, powerful nation under David and Saul and the judges, people who can fight, people who can defend, who can put up a contest that are no longer foreigners and no longer weak, and that kind of stuff. And guess what they're doing is sinful and wrong? But it's not this horrible lack of love to their neighbor, to the weak and oppressed. But that's different now with Israel. And that's why Amalek is now put on the seat. And yet they will not get taken care of until Hezekiah. It will take a thousand years before Israel can finally be obedient to God enough to deal with Amalek. And so the Amalek is now put on the extermination list. <clears throat> 